Father, forgive us for the many times we come into this sanctuary and leave unchanged. We know that when we meet with you, we can never be the same. And Father, we ask you tonight to come and meet with us. Lord, your word says that you are enthroned in the praises of your people. We know that when we praise you, all the attention moves from us to you. So, Lord, as we study your word tonight, we pray that you would come and speak to us. I pray particularly tonight, Father, for that man or woman or young person who finds themselves absolutely confused over what it is you want from them. And may you answer their cry tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will, take your Bibles and turn, please, to the book of Galatians, the New Testament book of Galatians. We've been studying there for three weeks, three sessions so far. We have two more to go. And we're going to be looking tonight and focusing on two brief sections, but we're actually covering chapters 3 through chapter 5, verse 12. You're saying, whoa. Well, we're not going to cover it verse by verse, but we are covering themes. And you know, that we have been looking at five key ideas or thoughts that Paul teaches us in the book of Galatians. In many ways, Galatians is, is a summary of the book of Romans, and it is a summary that answers the most basic questions about how you and I are to live. So the first theme we picked up on was the word rescued, and we saw that in the first few verses of chapter 1. And then we picked up in chapter 2, I think it was verse 16, the, the word justified, and that after we have been rescued, we begin to understand that the way that we have been saved is that all our sins have been forgiven and washed away by the sacrifice of Jesus, and then all of the goodness and righteousness of Jesus has been given to us as a gift. We saw that with the word justified. Last week, we looked at the word crucified, probably one of the most neglected teachings in the New Testament that, that talks about our union with Christ, that when Christ died, I died. When he rose from the grave, I rose from the grave. And that because I am united with him in my salvation, that the things that are true of Jesus in relationship to sin are now true of me. The things true of Jesus in relationship to the Father are now true of me. And everything has changed because I've been united with him, most, most of all the way the Father sees me. When he looks at me, he doesn't see me and all my failures and all the miserable mistakes and confusion that I carry. He doesn't see all the, the stuff that sin has created in my life. Because I'm in Christ, he sees his precious son. And everything that he loves about Jesus, now he loves about you because you've been made one with him. And so, imagine for just a moment, you're the Apostle Paul. You're spreading the gospel throughout the Roman world. And you come to a town, and you preach the gospel that Jesus Christ 
was in fact sent by God to tell us who God is, to show us how God has called us to live in dependence on Him, and then to die for our sins and conquer death. And He is because of that Lord of lords and King of kings. Jesus is Lord. And people hear that message and they respond to it. And they come and their hearts are humbled and broken by their sin. And they, they put their trust in Jesus. And, and he, they are saved. They become Christians. And in the process of that, they, they hear Paul tell them that when you trust Christ, the Holy Spirit, he comes to live in you. And he's there to be for you all that Jesus would be if he were here in person. The Holy Spirit lives in you to communicate to you the presence of God and the heart of God and the will of God for your life. And he teaches them for several months and then he leaves. And then several months later, some other teachers show up. And they say, well, Paul's a good guy. But he hasn't spent much time in Jerusalem with the apostles. You know the guys that walked with Jesus? He hasn't spent much time with them. And so we, we are from the apostles in Jerusalem. And, and we need to tell you some stuff that Paul left out. You see, Christ is the Savior of the world. And when you trust him, your sins are forgiven. But there's some things you need to do that the Jews have always done. You need to observe certain holy days. You need to watch what you eat. You need to eat like a Jewish person. And you need to be circumcised if you're a male. And you need to follow some very specific Jewish practices if you're going to be faithful to the covenant that God has made with man that the Jewish people represent. And the people listening are are confused, but it sounds like maybe these guys are right. And maybe, you know, it never felt quite right that I'm saved just by trusting in Jesus. And so it seems like maybe there's something else I should be doing. You know, there's Christian churches that do that. There are. A person can join a church and make a basic commitment to Christ, and then they say, now, if you're a Christian, you have to do this, and you have to do this, and you have to do this, and you have to do this. You have to participate in this ceremony, in this ritual. You have to be a committed member by participating in this activity. And when you do these things, then maybe, maybe you'll go to heaven when you die. And so it's still happening today. This is not hypothetical. There are people in Wynn, Arkansas that believe that in order to go to heaven, you've got to be good enough. That Jesus is, yeah, he died on the cross. Uh, but that's not enough. You've got to add to what he did. You've got to add to his work with your own work. The Apostle Paul wrote Galatians to shred that notion. And he's not happy about it. As he starts out, he says, I just, I'm absolutely shocked that so quickly you all could have gone back to this way of life where it's all about keeping the rules. He says, you've been rescued. It's not something you did, something he did for you. You've been justified, he says, that everything necessary to wipe your sin away, 
Everything necessary for you to be labeled as a good person has already been done for you in Christ. And that's credited to your account when you trust Christ. And not only that, he says, but, but you have this new life in you. The Holy Spirit has come to live in you. And you've been united with Christ. And Jesus died on the cross. You know what that means? The very worst that sin can do. It's already happened. When he died, you died. The moment you trusted Christ, your old life ended. In the life I now live in the flesh, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What's he saying? He's saying the very life of Jesus Christ is pulsing through his own life. That Jesus is real to him, a person, someone he knows, someone he talks to, someone who's living, not an idea in an old book. He is a living person. He says, I'm experiencing Christ. I know Christ, and Christ is living through me. You want to live by a bunch of rules? You're going to lose something incredible by doing that. So when we come to chapter 3, this is where Paul's coming from. Now, we don't have the, uh, the space to go into this in detail, but let me just highlight two major arguments. The first argument that Paul's arguing against rule-keeping is a way of life. The first one is this. The real children of Abraham are those who receive the Spirit by faith, not those who keep the law. I'll just look at that, think about that. Now, I'm going to read Galatians 3. I'm going to read the first five verses. Just listen. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Or by the hearing of faith. So when they heard the gospel and they put their trust in Christ, they received the Spirit. It was something they recognized had happened to them. Paul helped them understand it had happened to them. Verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, Think about that statement. Works miracles among you? Does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So what is Paul saying? The real children of Abraham are not the rule keepers. And, and there's a sustained argument all the way through chapter 3 and most of chapter 4. And the argument is basically something like this. Abraham was not a rule keeper. The law of Exodus 20 came years after Abraham. This is Paul's argument now in the text. He said Abraham simply believed what God told him, did what God told him to do. That's all he did was just simply be obedient to what God was leading and saying to him. That's it. And because of that, it says it was accounted to him or credited to him as righteousness. 
And so what that's saying is that Abraham in the sight of God was righteous. On what basis? Because he kept the law that hadn't even been given yet? Or because he believed and trusted in Christ, in God? And so that's what he's doing. And he's saying, essentially, who's your daddy? Are you, uh, are you a product of the rule-keeping system? Or are you a son or daughter of Abraham? Abraham was not a rule keeper. He was a man of faith. That's his argument. Well, the big argument number two is this. The children of promise cannot coexist with the children of the flesh. This is an amazing argument that he makes. It's allegorical. He's using historical figures as symbols of theological truth. It's kind of crazy. We don't teach that way anymore, but he is. And um, he talks about Hagar and Sarah and all that kind of stuff. The bottom line is this. He's saying Isaac was a product of God's promise. Ishmael was a product that was man-made. This was man's idea. And he said the two approaches to life, one by simply trusting the promise of God or one by doing what you got to do to make it work. These two approaches cannot coexist. In fact, he says, Ishmael persecutes Isaac. And he's saying, that's what the rule keepers are doing to you. They can't handle grace. So they're doing this to you. So that brings me to uh, the two things I want to focus on tonight. First question is this. What will I lose if I surrender to the rule keeping way of life? We're looking at um, really the first six verses of chapter five. What will I lose? Now remember, Paul's teaching there's two basic ways that people approach God. There is an Old Testament covenant. The Old Testament covenant was that God gave the law. The law is good because it reflects the character and heart of God. It is good. And the covenant is if you will keep the law, then God will have this covenant relationship with you. But the obligation is on you to keep the law. And that's one way to live. Rule keeping. Now the law is good. But you can't keep it. And the problem is, is that there's nothing in the law that gives you the power to keep it. There's no Holy Spirit that helps you keep the law in the Old Covenant. It's prophesied. He says, I'm going to take your, your heart of stone, replace it with a heart of flesh. He prophesies about the indwelling to come in the New Covenant. But the Old Covenant is very simple. Here's the law. You keep the rules. I'll be faithful to you. You'll be saved at the end of the day. But nobody can keep the rules. And so there's the law. And you can just put the Ten Commandments up there, whatever commandments you want to put up there. There's the law. It reflects the heart and the character and the beauty and the, the nature of God. It is good. And he says, I made you to bring glory to me, but then we discover that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I cannot reflect God by keeping the rules. I can't. I will fail. I will fail. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We can't do it. So Paul is arguing that there's another way to live. That when you, when you put your faith in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is there in you. And he accomplishes things in you that no one 
else can. You can't even do it for yourself. The new way to live is not by trying to keep the rules. Why? Because all the rules have been kept. Everything necessary to fulfill the rules have been, has been done. Not by you, but by Jesus. And the rules say that, that if you break the rules, you should die. You should be condemned for eternity, separated from God. There's nothing you can do about that, but Jesus took care of that. He died in your place. And so as in terms of the law, everything that has to be done has been done, Paul says. So how do you live? You know, in the Christian church today, a lot of people have the idea, well, the way that you live is you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and then you go try to keep the law. Paul says, no. The way you live, and we'll see this especially in our last session, the way you live is you walk in the Spirit. Everything necessary to fulfill the law has been done. What you need to do is develop, cultivate a relationship with God through His Holy Spirit and become sensitive and being obedient to Him. Does the law matter? Sure it matters. Read your Scripture. Saturate your mind with God's Word. You must do that. You need to do that. The Holy Spirit will change you, transform you through that. But He accomplishes it through the indwelling of His Spirit in your life. When you do wrong, he convicts you that it's wrong. Convinces you, I shouldn't have done that. When you ought to do something, call someone, serve God in some way, go a different direction, change jobs, accept a new calling, whatever it is that God's doing, he leads you to do that. And you say, yes, Lord. I'm being prompted, I'm being led. My heart's being stirred. Something is going on. God is speaking to me. And as we follow that leading and walk in that spirit, he says in actually one verse in Romans that we'll see that, that the people who live that way, they actually fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Not by looking at it and trying to do it, but by being sensitive and obedient to God through his spirit. Radically different approaches to life. What will I lose if I surrender to the rule-keeping way of life. Number one, according to Romans 5.1, I'll lose freedom. He says, do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. I lose my freedom. Jesus set you free from a works-based obsession with keeping the rules. He set you free for a better way. I lose my freedom. Secondly, I lose transformation. I lose transformation. He's in verse two, he says, Christ will profit you nothing. If you live that way, he will profit you nothing. What does that mean? He wants to change you. He wants to transform you into his likeness. One of my favorite verses, um, Galatians 4.19, my little children, for whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you. The very character of Christ is his transformation that the Spirit wants to accomplish in you. If I go to a works-based approach, I lose that transformation. I become something other than the character of Christ. Number three, I lose forgiveness. Verses three to five, there's a phrase there that says, he is a debtor to keep the whole law. If I go back to a rule-based system, it's all or nothing. You can't just keep a few, and that's what these rule keepers were saying. You've got to keep the holy days, you've got to be circumcised, you've got to watch the dietary requirements. They, they didn't say you had to keep all the law, just some of the law. He said it's all or nothing. You're going to keep one, you break one, you become a debtor to all of them. 
What does that mean? You break one Ten Commandments, you've broken all of them. Why? Because the whole thing reflects the character of God. One offense and you've stepped outside of what God intended for you to be and do. Remember the old Lay's potato chip commercial? You can't eat just one. That's what Paul's saying about the law. You can't, you can't just make one really important to you and say, I'll just keep that one. He says, if, if you break any of them, you're obligated to all of them. Number four, if I keep hammering at this rule-keeping way of life, I lose usefulness. Usefulness. Because my whole aim in life is about being good. Being good. You say, well, Don, are you saying you should be bad? No. But I'm, I, I, I'm not supposed to be obsessed with being good. I'm supposed to be obsessed with being obedient, faith, faithful, in love with him, worshiping him, yielded to him, a living sacrifice, constantly being offered to him, constantly being consumed to him. And not worrying about, oh, I messed up again. For in Christ, he says in verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Faith working through love. What's faith? Faith is a response to anything that God has said or done. And so faith, if I'm working in faith, it's because I'm doing something that God has said for me to do. It's the only way I can exercise faith. I can't make up what I'm going to trust God for. So if I'm actively trusting him, I'm being obedient. So it's an act of faith, faith working through love. He said that makes a difference. That does something. Because you have a sense of what God's leading you to do, you're being obedient to that, and you're going to be right in the flow of God's activity in your life. Faith working through love. So if I don't live that way, I lose my usefulness. I can preach all day long. I can knock on a thousand doors. Be like running through peanut butter. But Jesus can lead me to go talk to one person. And they get saved. Everything changes. Second question I want us to look at tonight. What does it mean to live as an adopted person? What does it mean to live as an adopted person? I want to focus as we uh, wrap this up on verses 4, 5, and 6 of chapter 4. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6. The apostle writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. And redeem means to set free that we might receive the adoption of sons. Are you getting the picture? And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Some of y'all may not know it, but I was adopted. My parents divorced when I was little. My mother remarried, and the man she married adopted me. So what I want you to see on the screen is my first grade report card. This is before I was adopted, okay? My name was Donovan Donnelly, first grade, okay? Now that was my report card, the first grade. If you look carefully, especially at conduct on the bottom left side, 
And if you, if you look at the scholastic progress on the right side, X means needs improvement. Could you put a, just a few more X's up there? Okay. I didn't know that there was a difference between daycare and first grade. No one explained that to me. So I just carried on. All right. So by the second grade, I had a new father and I was adopted. So I have a new, I'm in the second grade. My name is still Don Donnelly. It shows my parents, we were living in Nashville at the time, were Robert and Judy Pusick. I was just there a few months. But in that time frame, the adoption became final. So go ahead and look at the next one. Um, now I'm in the St. Edwards Elementary in downtown Little Rock in 1972. And uh, it has the pastor of the church there, Reverend Alquin, uh, Father Alquin, he used to do the report cards. He used to come in and stand at the front of the class, the whole sixth grade class, whole seventh grade class, whatever it was. He'd hold the report cards. He had a whole stack of them. And his glasses would be like this. And he'd look down and he'd say, um, Dustin Clegg. <laughs> Dustin, I think you can do better next time. He'd give that to him. And he, and he would call your name out like that. Well, I, I was making the turn, and so my grades were getting better uh, at that point. But look at um, the sixth grade now. I've got a new name. I've got a new name. Uh, at this point, I'm Don Pusick. And uh, I had a new family. I had a new grandmother. She, she uh, spoke English with a heavy accent. She came to this country in 1932 from Slovakia. And uh, she just, everything had a K at the end of every word with I-N-G. I was thinking the other day, you know. Um, it's a different world. So when we talk about adoption, some of you know about adoption. Uh, some of you have adopted, some of you have been adopted, some of you are adopting. And, um, and this concept is a very important one that Paul is using to help people understand that we are called to a different way of life. He's used the idea of union with Christ, but now he's talking about adoption, that your relationship with the Father has changed. So, so what does it mean when uh, to live as an adopted person. Number one, here's what it means. First, I was not always a son. I wasn't always Don Pusick. My earliest years, I was Donovan Sykes Donnelly, the second. And um, I was named exactly after my dad, my birth father. Um, and uh, and that's, that's who he was. And then I got a new name. Now, my birth father um, went on to marry four more times. And um, his fourth wife, when their marriage was breaking up, she said to me, she said, Don, your dad's just not marriage material. And I did family tree work at one point, curious to know about my bloodline anyway. 
and discovered that divorce or separation went all the way back to the middle of the 19th century in my family. My great-grandparents divorced in 1912. And that was my natural line, but I was adopted into a new family. I was not always a son of Robert Pusick. I was not always a son of him. And you were not always a son or a daughter of God. There was a time when you weren't. Before Christ, you were not adopted. But when you trusted Christ, you were adopted, and you became a son, and you became a daughter. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God was going to do something new. He'd given the law, and now he was doing something new, something entirely different. Number two, I have a new father or authority in my life. That's what it means to be adopted. I have a new father or authority in my life. It says in verse 4 that God sent forth his son. God sent forth his son. Why did he do that if it wasn't something radically different than what he had done before? For the believer in Christ who's a person of the Spirit, I believe this means that no amount of rule-keeping as a way of life is okay. That we are called completely to put our rest and our hope in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He sent his Son for me. He sent his Son for you. If you could do it on your own, he would not have sent his Son. I'm absolutely dependent on the Father and His rescue and His salvation and His Son. Nothing else. Nothing I do, nothing I offer. He did it for me. He sent His Son for me. Number three, to live as an adopted person means I have a Father who paid a great price to make me His Son. He paid a great price to make me His Son. When my Father adopted me, I'm sure there were fees involved, but He gave me His name. And I became an heir. I became a son in every sense because I was adopted. Um, he said he was sent to redeem those who were under the law. So Jesus is sent to set people free who are under the rule-keeping system, the people who are obligated to the law. Jesus came to set you free from that. Why? How did he do it? He did everything that I couldn't do. He did it all for me, accomplished it for me. In Roman times, the head of the family had absolute authority and control over the whole household. This is who Jesus, the context that Jesus is being described in. Adoption in that day of time was far more strict, far more significant, far more permanent even than adoption in our culture. For when you were adopted, you came under the absolute authority of that father. One father gave up all of his rights all of his rights to a son, and he surrendered them to another father. And when I was adopted, my birth father had to sign a release. And when you were adopted, you were released from your old obligations and connections. A price was paid. Adoption granted full and permanent rights to the son and defined forever the relationship between that son and that father. You could adopt a slave who was at the lowest rung of Roman society, who had no rights. You could adopt 
a slave, if you were a patrician at the highest level of Roman society, you could adopt a slave, and that slave would become your son. He would become a patrician. He would become part of the highest class in Roman society, and everyone would recognize him as a patrician, as a son. You have been adopted. And a price was paid by the Father to bring you into his family. And that price was his own son. Finally, to live as an adopted person means I have a father who wants to be intimate with me. In verse 6, he says, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Jesus could have revealed God to us in so many different ways. The most preferred and common way that Jesus described Almighty God was His Father. The Spirit who indwells you, according to this passage, is an experiential reality in the believer's life. He is not an idea, He is not a mist. He is not an impersonal force. He is a person. And he comes into your heart, and to the degree that you are growing and release control of your life to his leadership and his lordship in your life, you will find increasingly an impulse to go to the Father and seek him. Abba, Father. For the believer in Christ, my true relationship with God is not of the lawgiver that I, that I have to keep all the laws and rules. My truest relationship, Paul's trying to tell the Galatians, is that of a child to his father. A child to his father. I wonder if you have ever trusted Christ and been released from the obligations of the law. Without Christ, the Bible says every one of us is going to stand before the, the judgment throne. Every one of us. And if you can use your imagination just a little bit with me, imagine going to that judgment throne just by yourself with that obligation of the law being the basis by which you would be judged. You're saying, well, I'm not sure, you know, what Christians believe, and I'm not sure about all that stuff. I haven't read all the Old Testament. I don't know about all the Old Testament laws. Listen, it won't matter. He says that this sense of law has been written into every human heart. Do you ever feel guilty about anything? Do you ever feel like anything you do is wrong? He's written that into the conscience of every human being. And those who know the law, their conscience may be more sensitive, but it's still a wash. You're either a sinner with no hope, without Christ in this world, or you're a person who is in Christ and you have been adopted and you are a son or a daughter in the family of God. And when a son 
comes before the throne, he's standing before the Father. When a son or daughter comes before the throne, they are in Christ. They were crucified with Christ. Everything demanded by the law has already happened in their life. The judgment that was required has already happened. The justice has already been done. The righteousness that the law demanded has been fulfilled in, the, in Jesus Christ. And you have been united with him if you're a Christian. And so you come as a son before the throne. It's always amazing to me that John writes in 1 John that on that day that Christians will have boldness in the day of judgment. Boldness. I'd be scared to death if I was a lost person on the judgment day. But he says, if you know Christ, he said, those that are his, they can have boldness. I'm coming to my Father. This is the one I've been talking to all these years. This is the one I've been seeking to know. This is the one who sent his spirit into my heart. This is my Father that I've spent my life seeking to please him, obey him, just live for him. And now I get to see him face to face. Hey, Dad. Boldness, he says. I can't comprehend that. That's where he says you and I are headed if we know Christ. Have you trusted him? Do you know Jesus? Do you know him not as an idea in an old book, but have you put your trust in him and what he did for you? He came to set you free. He came to bring you into the family. He came so that all your sins could be forgiven and washed away, but he came to give you a new life by putting his spirit, his spirit, the spirit of Christ inside you. What is a Christian? The greatest thing that sets Christians apart from everybody else is not that they're better than everybody else, but they have the Spirit of God living in them because they've trusted Christ and their sins have been washed away and forgiven. Tonight, if you would like to place your trust in Christ, I'm going to ask you, invite you to come and publicly confess Christ. If you have questions, there's scriptures that you don't understand, things you need to talk about, we invite you to come. There'll be pastors standing here at the front. You say, well, do I have to do it publicly? Well, no. You can come and talk to one of us in the office. You can come and see us after service. But one of the things Jesus did say is that as you put your trust in him, he does expect you and me to publicly claim him, to confess him before men. He said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father. So secret, being a secret Christian, not the plan. But everywhere we go, we should, without hesitation, say, you know, let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And so confessing Jesus in this time, in this place, is one way we do it, but you can do it in your workplace. You can do it at home. It should be a way of life. But we want to give you the opportunity tonight to put your trust in him. Pastors will be here at the front. If, if uh, they realize that you need more time than we have in the invitation, they'll step out with you, and they'll take all the time you need. And if you rode here with somebody, we'll give you a ride home. Now, how many places are going to offer you that? Come. Brothers or sisters, you may be struggling under the weight of a bondage that God never put on you. And he wants to set you free. And so if you're living under a legalism, thinking that you have to perform in order for God to smile on you, 
you're living under the load of that, the Apostle Paul says you've got to stop it. You can't do that. It's not about keeping rules. It's about being filled with the Spirit and being obedient to Him. The rules are good. The rules count. The rules matter. The rules will forever stand as a reflection of the character of God. But you will never do it apart from the Holy Spirit living in you. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Let's pray together. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for teaching us through this dear man, the Apostle Paul, and what you did in his life to change him. Lord, this was a man who knew the law. He knew the rules. And all of that faded away when he met Jesus. Father, I pray tonight, Almighty God, for that person who is struggling under the weight of obligation and who struggles with a sense of failure and shame constantly because they're trying, trying, and always failing. I pray, Almighty God, tonight that you would set that person free. Help them to see the truth in your word. Help them to see that you, you sent your son to redeem us from the law as a way of life. Father, as we respond to you now, we sing your praises. We open our hearts to you. Guide us as we worship you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.